Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. So, uh, today, I want to talk about autobiographical memory. Um, well, episodic memory, but episodic memories have to be autobiographical. Right? They're about yourself, by definition. They're episodes from your life. So, I'll talk about semantic memory um, when I talk about this a little bit. It's bound to happen. You can't not have semantic memory. I've been asked this question before. Has anybody ever had their semantic memory damaged and had intact episodic? I don't see how that's possible. So, by definition, autobiographical mem- memory is episodic. And we tend to think of episodic memory as something where we're, I don't know, um, think about a list of words. I mean, that's what I tend to think of because that's what we tend to use, these kind of experiments. We just did one in the, in the psych lab class using um, lists of words where we found results that don't make any sense. Uh, either we've completely blown the lid off everything or we did it wrong. Uh, I, I, I choose the latter. <laughs> But we tend to think of lists of words. We tend to think of, have we met before? That kind of thing. But in day-to-day stuff, in, in daily life, and there's people that study what they call everyday memory. We're talking about, what did you do yesterday? When I walk with my son to school every morning, I say the same thing to him. What did we do yesterday? Right? Trying to get him to... Think about, especially on the weekend, because I at least if his school's anything like mine was when I was that age, you know, one of the first things you did when you got into class on uh, on a Monday was you had to write a little composition about what you did on the weekend, right? So I was right, you know, what do we do? What do we do on the weekend? Tells me things. That's fine. That's sort of everyday autobiographical memory, which is episodic. We can't ignore the semantic aspects of autobiographical memory. Well, I'm going to mostly do it. <laughs> but we really, if you're thinking about it as a big topic, a big picture, you can't ignore it. Because you have to know what breakfast is to talk about what you have for breakfast. Right? So, like any other time when we talk about memory, the episodic part of it, so the semantic part of it, is going to be big. It's going to be important. But in essence... We're going to ignore it for today, but always realize it's there underlying everything. If you understand what it makes sense. Okay. So lists of words are easy to do for episodic stuff. Very easy. You give people a list of words, give them a distracted task, and you ask them to recall words. It's, it's really very trivial. Those experiments literally can be run in exceedingly short periods of time. You can test all kinds of people at once. I know in Broad, uh, Chalice and Broadbeck, we would test people, uh, in one experiment, we tested people 30 at a time. We presented the list of words to them, had them do a distractor task. It was in a classroom, presented it up on a screen. Before the age of PowerPoint, by the way, and this was really complicated to do. Uh, I had to actually write software to do it. <laughs> and then we distracted them by having them name as many capitals of European countries as they could. People take that very seriously, and they do very poorly as well, which is kind of fun to watch. And then we say, oh, yeah, that list of words we showed you. Well, of course, we distract them. We say things like, okay, uh, I'm going to show you. We've been developing some software for presenting stimuli. We're just trying to normalize it. Could you just read the words on the list? Don't say them out loud. And they'd show up, and everything's fine. And then, then we're also interested in your geographical knowledge. If you name as many European capitals as you can, they do that. They take that more seriously. They take reading the, the, the word list. And then you say, oh, right. Could you rem- write down any of the words remembered? That's easy to do. We would run 30 subjects at once. And in a day, we got 60 subjects. We ran two, two sessions. No problem. We get all the data. We're, we're, we're done that part of that experiment literally in an afternoon. No big deal. So it's easy to study. Autobiographical memory, when you talk, and yes, technically that was autobiographical, but talking about life events, it's hard. That's hard to do. A couple reasons here. These are all self-reports. When I give you a list of words, I know what the words were because I gave you a list of words. 
I've got that totally under my control. When I say to you, I would like you to remember something from your past, I, I can't verify if it's true or not. Can I? It's impossible for me to do, actually. Because if I'm interested in, everybody recall your 10th birthday party, if you can. And people do it. And one kid says, and you know, blah, 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 blah. And uh, one kid choked on a peanut and died. <laughs> For all I know, you made that up. Another kid says, and I got a pony. Maybe you did. Hard for me to verify. <clears throat> I guess I could call around and check it. It's pretty impossible. Because typically there are things as, hey, yes, somebody died or I got a pony. Typically there are things like, well, I think we played pintail on the donkey. And, you know, then there were loot bags at the end. And in the, over in the loot bags, uh, uh, a couple of cookies and, a, and popcorn. What do I mean? Call your mom and say, ask, what did you put in your kid's 10th birthday party loot bags? She's not going to remember that. Unless she's wrote it all down, which would be kind of creepy. Right? So it's all self-report, so it's hard for me to validate anything. Um, so the reliability of the response is their stability as well. Like It's hard for me to test. So the, the, the validity and the reliability are hard for me to deal with. Um, there are two approaches that have been used for looking at life events like this. And one of them is the Q-word approach. And the other one is the diary approach. And they're, they're connected. Uh, they both have limitations. We'll talk about both of these today. But I think you'll see the limitations um, for sure. With the diary approach, what am I doing? I'm getting you to write stuff down and remember it later. And that later might be years from now. The keyword approach, I get you to write something down and I get you to associate it with a word. I need mean, work, which is nice. And I actually have the diary in front of me. That's great. And I say, okay, um, you remember that you got a test back, and you got 37 out of 50. And the word I want you to associate that with is sequoia. Six months later, I say sequoia. What do you remember? So that's two ways to go. One of the people who did this guy named Lincoln, actually a woman, I think, uh, in 1986, recorded events in her life and dated them. This happened on this date. And then Lincoln recalled a sample of it. Because you're not going to recall the whole thing. You have to sort of sample from the list. So it's like, what happened on this date? And then she'd go to her diary and see if she was right. It's really the only way you can do this. Right? And really, studying yourself is the only thing you can do. Because how are you going to get people? You want, we're talking here about remembering <coughs> stuff over years and years. You're, you're going to lose touch with people. Right? It's going to happen. And are you going to get someone to write down things in a diary every day for the next 10 years? No. Right? Uh, no matter how dedicated someone is, no matter how much you pay them, they're going to forget. The resources that will be used will be tremendous. So you, you study yourself. In the sort of classic tradition of Ebbinghaus, you're going to study yourself. It's really the only way to do this. Now, Lynn found she got about 5% of stuff per year. Okay? Now, again, well, of everything, no. Random samples, different days, what happened that day? Okay. And there was decay over time. About 5% more each year was forgotten. Uh, this, these are lots of events each day, by the way. This is what happened this day. This is what happened this day. Um, Wagner did in 86, same year, uh, something similar, but Wagner chose one event per day and wrote down uh, who, won, uh, what, when, where. You know, the, the classic when you hear about it. Who was I with? What did we do? When did it happen? And where did it happen? Yeah. The essence, really, of sort of episodic autobiographical information. So one event per day. 
right? Wagner found a power function such that there was decay that looks just like decay that Ebbinghaus found the same sort of function, right? Classic decay curve. Beautiful. Uh, Wagner used Q's. It's the Q method. So Q words. Um, and tried recalling five events per day. Okay. This isn't surprising. The best recall is for happy events. That's good. There is, in fact, an effect in human memory called the Pollyanna effect. And what it says is that we remember happy events better than sad events. We remember happy words better than sad words. Pollyanna effect. P-O-L-L-Y-A-N-N-A. The Pollyanna is a really sugary story about someone who thinks everything's great all the time. That's a Pollyanna. That's a word that people use. And not in the ironic Lily Allen way. When everything is just wonderful. Anyone knows that song? It's a, it's a really... It's not a good book, but it became really popular somehow. It was in the movie. It's supposed to make you feel good. And it's... It, it's sweet and sticky. And you feel like you should have showered afterwards. It's so nice. Yes, Exactly the opposite thing happens. People that score high on the Beck Depression inventory actually remember sad words better than happy words. You can actually use it. Uh, I wouldn't use it totally as a diagnostic tool, but I know uh, clinician friends of mine will use that as part of their, their diagnostic thing. They're, they will give them Beck Depression inventory. They'll talk to people. They'll also give them a list of words. It has words like joy, happy, fun, and uh, sad, death, and destruction. And they, most of us don't remember sad death destruction. People who are depressed, they do. They forget happy, joy, and fun. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, typically we remember happy things better than sad things. And it's, it's, so this shouldn't surprise us when there are events. The same thing happens with words, so we would expect it to happen with events. The nice thing I like about that as well is that it shows that our studies of lists of words actually do relate to something remembering more complicated material, events from our lives. It follows the same set of rules, so it's not like a complete waste of time giving people lists of words. Right? I like that. Because you often get the criticism of doing experimental psychology when you want to look at anything humans do. Uh, that, oh, you know, that's not, that it's just in the lab, that's not something that applies to real life, and it really actually seems to, so I kind of like that. <sighs> Using yourself as your own subject, and I'm not saying Wagner and Lincoln aren't any good at what they do, because they are. What I'm saying is that I think if they were standing here, they would both they would both say that there's huge limitations here. You know what you expect to happen. That's an experimental effect. You expect that to happen, right? Um, you know what your hypothesis is, right? You expect this to happen. Better be called for it. Because you're a cognitive psychologist. You know this already. But how the hell else can you do it? So it becomes a real problem, it seems to me, in this case, using... The nice thing is, this is valid. You can validate this, right? So you can go back and look and say, yes, that happened. I had a diary. I wrote it down that day. That's great. Your problem you have is that you are using yourself as your own subject, which comes with a whole bunch of its own problems. Okay. I was just going to say, even though you have a diary, it still is your subjective. Yeah. But it's better than just, it's better than me asking all of you what happened to your birthday party. Because I can't validate that at all. Right? Unless you did keep a diary when you were 10, and very few people do, and if they did, they don't keep them. Right? Um, so you can't validate that at all. At least in this, these approaches, you actually can say, I know what happened here. Right? So that's useful. And again, it shows, like I said, the idea that the, the sort of rules that we found with lists of words and, and pictures work just as well with um, the same sort of uh, rules applied to, to real autobiographical information. 
Um, so that keyword method I was talking about is you give a list of words to the subject, and the subject associates those words with autobiographical events. Again, you almost have to do this over very long periods of time. So you give the cues to the person and have them do the recall. One of the interesting things you get, this has been done over, there have been longitudinal studies done here in the last five, six, seven, ten years. You can do it, and typically the way you would do this kind of thing is you find colleagues in your psychology department who you know are going to be around for a long time. And don't mind doing this once every couple of weeks, coming in saying, here's an event, give me a keyword. No big deal. One of the things we get is called the reminiscence bump. Um, we get typical decay, okay? The decay function looks like And we, we do this with the Q method, and we'll go percent correct. And we can look at events in, in your life. Put your age here. So you're going to have to do this perhaps over a very long period of time. But, so let's say it's me. I'm almost 50. I'm 47. So I'm going to remember more recent stuff better. And then it decays just like you'd expect. And then it does this, and it decays again. You have this, this bump, it's your reminiscence, your memory, for some reason, goes up in your late teens and early 20s. The reminiscence bump. So, and that's a pretty reliable thing that happens whenever these studies are done. People study themselves, and they can actually get a few subjects that will do over a long period, over a long haul, they'll get this kind of thing. So it's a, it's a pretty reliable thing. It isn't just an artifact of the method. One, the question one could ask that obvious thing is why? Because the, the, the function's all beautiful and going down just like everything else would tell you, and then it bumps up. Well, maybe the memories are happier. We know that happy memories are remembered better, so maybe the memories in your late teens, early 20s are just happier memories than later on. And I know a lot of you are sitting there thinking, my life's hell, man. Um, when you have more perspective, as you get older, you realize that, you know, not actually having to pay your own bills is actually kind of cool. Uh, or, or whatever the case may be, right? So it could be that. It could be the memories are happier. I would argue that's probably the case. Right? And maybe your encoding processes are better. We got age. We talked the, uh, last time about how you know your memory declines as you get older. It just happens. You've got a time when you're in your early adulthood where you're probably at your peak as far as encoding ability. Plus, you're going to school. Almost everybody between 18 and 22, let's say, is, is in some form of educational institution, right? And kind of that's the deal. That's the way it works now. And what's one of the important things? You have to write tests. And what do you do then? You study. What's studying? It's encoding. You just practice at remembering stuff. Right? So maybe it's just that. You just practice it. You're good at it simply because you're used to remembering things all the time. I know, for example, when I've talked to any number of mature students who come back and they're in their first or second year, They'll always say the same thing. I'm just not used to trying to remember stuff all the time like this. They get used to it. They do fine. But it takes some time. Whereas when you just come out of all your years of elementary school and high school, and then you go off to university or college, you're used to this. This is what you do. This is, what you, this is your job. Right? So it could be a combination there. There's also a lot of big events when you're in your late teens and early 20s. You graduate from high school. You graduate from the university or college. Those are big things. you get your first job, first actual proper job. I don't mean like, you know, just regular old job where you're just making money so you can have money in your pocket to buy beer. I mean one where you actually make money and you get a real paycheck. And then you look and you actually see on the paycheck where they take off the tax and it's a lot of money that bothers you for the first time, right? So you got a job. You probably find the first time you really fall in love is when you're in your late teens and early 20s. 
right? So you meet your husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or all four. I love it. I never tired of that joke. Um, these are big events in your life. Right? I think back to like when I was, you know, God, at the age of 22, I finished university. I met a woman that would actually finally put up with me, who I'm now married to. Uh, I went off to graduate school. I got a master's degree. That all happened in a period of about a year. Right? Those are pretty big events. Between 22 and 23, all those things happened to me. Oh, and I moved in with that girl. That's a big event, too. And I moved away from my house for the first time. That's a, and I did my own laundry for the first time. Hey, Mom, how do you do laundry? Okay, so you separate whites and colors and you use cold water. Okay, gotcha, thanks. I thought so, I just wanted to be sure. All right, talk to you. Get your own place for the first time and you go, what do you do? You buy, I remember this clearly, I bought Captain Crunch and Oreos. Because <laughs> my mom never bought shitty cereal. And I bought Captain Crunch and I just ate the whole freaking box. <laughs> You know, and then I ate a whole thing of Oreos. So thinking, yep, I'm spoiling my dinner, and I don't care. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my house, and I'll do what I want. <laughs> and then you threw off. No, no, no. Uh, it was, I was, I was, I was indestructible. I was 23 years old. I could, you know, my, my body actually could take living like that back then. You know, back when my regular diet was two liters of Coke, a pack of cigarettes, and a bag of Cheetos. <laughs> I'm amazed I'm still alive. Um, you can do that when you're in your early 20s. But I mean, I remember those, I remember that like it was yesterday. I know exactly how much money I spent the first time I went grocery shopping for myself. Just because it was like, this is cool, look, I'm grocery shopping. I can buy whatever I want. Cat Crunch, Oreos. Oh yeah. I still remember the phone number of the pizza place I used to call in Toronto. Pizza Gigi. Guy answered the phone like this. Hey, Gigi, hang on a second. <laughs> what do you want? Phone number? All right, three minutes. You had to learn how to speak pizza Gigi. You have to talk to this guy. Those are all, and that was all, like I said, that's all within a year. All those huge things happened in my life. So there's no doubt that I remember all this stuff from grad school and all these stories and that, because they're big events. Also, the interesting thing is, I, there's a lot of happy events there as well. Right? finished university, like undergrad, I got into grad school, that was all very exciting. I met people that are still my friends today. And often, Isabel will say to me, remember all those times when you hated graduate school? I go, oh, right. Because I, I don't tend to just, they don't come to the surface. When I talk about graduate school, I think of it as this wonderful time. And I know that there were times when it was not wonderful. But I don't remember those times. They don't, they're, they aren't as, I can sit here and force myself to them. And they're still in there. As soon as I'm reminded of it, it's like, oh yeah, of course, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that horrible prof I TA for him when I was my first year in grad school. Didn't know what he was doing. It was awful. But also, I got to meet all these people and had fun and went every Wednesday night after the club, we got hammered and, you know, oh yeah, yeah, it was fun. Science. You know, so it's a big part of your life. So I think maybe that's why you put all these things together. And I, in coding processes, I was going to, I've been through four years of university and now I was going to do another four and a half. I was a student for a living. It's all I did. Right? So you put all that stuff together and there's a reason why I show this like anybody else does. Like, I don't know which of these it is, but I think it's probably all of them. It's a hard thing to test, too. I don't think anybody's ever going to really know. But couldn't, couldn't you also be remembering a lot of it because you use it in your lectures? So you're sure. constantly using it? Well, I use this stuff. I, I use things I learned in graduate school every day. Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, it trains me to do my job. Right. Yeah, but I mean that sort of fits. Again, if you go off to if you go to business school and you end up being an investment banker, you use what you learned in business classes all the time. So again, 
it's all the stuff that's preparing you for whatever you're going to be when you grow up kind of thing, right? So, I mean, they are big events, and the encoding process there is better. You put, I think it's all these things together. We don't tend to remember sad things about school. They, they're there, right? I had a horrible time in grade 11. I hated school. Hated, 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 hated. Not the school, the social part of high school. I didn't like it very much at that time. Um, it was, it was really, really bad, actually. Uh, horrible bullying, like really bad stuff. I don't think about that. Not really. I used to, I don't anymore. Sort of got over it. <laughs> you know, now I remember fun things we did. You know, you got all your Facebook friends from 20 years ago that you got to in high school with. You look good times, not bad. So, yeah, it's all this stuff together. And what you're saying I think, is true, too. I mean, yeah, I use it every day, but I think everyone uses what they learned at that time every day. Right? And that's, again, where you meet the first set of adult friends you have, you meet in your 20s. Right? It's the first time you, you make new friends that you don't just become friends with them because you have the same kind of bike. Yeah. <laughs> they're playing outside your front door. You know, you actually meet people and they become friends. And everybody's kind of a little bit more of a grown-up when you get to university and college. They're a little bit better about things like that. You know, you don't worry about who the cool kids are anymore because it's like you're kind of past that typically. Right? So it's all that stuff. All that stuff. Okay, I'm going to read you a list of words. If you've seen this, we do this before. I don't want you saying anything. Please don't write these down. Pin, inoculation, haystack, sharp, pointy, knitting, phonograph. Autobiographical memories are, they can be thought of as a narrative, and that's a, like a word they use in English classes, meaning story. Well, the narrative, oh, you mean the story? My favorite one, someone once said to me that they were studying filmic texts. I said, you mean movies? So, anyway. Narrative, story, it's got a, it's, it's got a, there's something happening. So you can think of your autobiographical memory like a story, right? So, well, let's take a look at that. Let's look at giving people a story and ask them what they recall. That's easy to do. And you can make up some, it, it could be, uh, a mundane kind of story. You can make a happy story. You can do a lot of nice controls here. You could make it a traumatic event uh, with a happy ending or a sad ending. That's just for me and Yana. Um, you using anybody in this class, right? No. Okay. Yeah, that's her water thesis is on. So that's why I mentioned that. Um, by the way, the stories she wrote are really moving. She has an English degree, and she can write, and you read it, you go, oh, God. Pretty intense. No, it's true. You, you can write things. I can't mean together words put. I'm like, good. <laughs> but you can do that. It's a good skill. So you can do all kinds of stuff. And then what you can do is you can check what parts of the story people remember. Right? So you can find out all about this kind of stuff, which is, again, kind of what I was doing for a thesis. Um, so get up here and tell us about it. Yeah, I'm kidding, of course. Um, <laughs> present your thesis talk now. You remember surprisingly little when you get right. And I'm talking about details you don't tend to get right. This can be done with long or short retention intervals. You might use 10 minutes, you might use a couple of days. You get the gist of the story, though. When I say, I can give you sentences and say, was this in the story or was it not? You get about half of the time you get those right. In other words, you get the random chance. There's only two possibilities, yes or no. You can't say not sure or maybe. You force choice, right? Yes or no. Um, asking people about various details, asking people, was this sentence in the story? Right? We've all seen We've all seen Star Trek shows and movies. We must have because it's been on forever, and if you haven't, you should leave. Um, because it's important that you know these things. If I ask most people that aren't really into Star Trek, you know, which of the following was not in, in, in a Star Trek show, which of the following, uh, in, in any of the series, movie, which of the following statements were never made? 
Look at these three words written bigger than the rest. Beam me up, Scotty. Red alert. Go through all those. Most people wouldn't pick the beam me up, Scotty. It was never, ever said once. Ever. In any Star Trek episode, ever. Yet we all think it was. And Scotty beamed people up. So that's sensible. Whereas, look at these three words written bigger than the rest. It's from the episode, The Omega Glory. Season two, favorite episode of this. Kirk is holding the U.S. Constitution. Look at these three words written bigger than the rest. We the people. <laughs> these words are not written just for the Yangs, but also for the columns. Love that episode. That episode, for example, the gist of it is that, you know, they land on, spoiler alert, 1968, it's a long time ago, just letting you know it's available on U.S. Netflix and warrants everywhere. Um, you know, Kirk goes down to a planet and, and, and Spock and McCoy and they end up, uh, it's the, 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 the Yangs and the Kongs and they're fighting and the Yangs uh, are white folks and the Kongs are Asian of some description. And then it turns out, in fact, that there's been a chemical war. People live forever, they live 800 years, 900 years. And it turns out it's because they've been selected, for, a little Darwinian thing there, they've been selected for being resistant to these pathogens in the air. But now it's cool, and they think they've been infected. And then it turns out that it's a parallel like Earth, and the Yangs are the Yankees, and the Kongs are the communists. And that's when Kirk brings out, and they bring out the, the US flag, and they bring out the Constitution, and Kirk reads the Constitution and says the, the, the Pledge of Allegiance. See, I know that, but I don't know all the words. Well, I know that little speech Kirk makes because that's something my friend Rob and I used to say in graduate school. But the gist of the story, I can tell you what happened in any episode, right? How do we describe episodes of TV shows? Oh, that's the one where no one ever stands up and just says the whole thing, right? I've heard many of the cast of Star Trek very serious say that, you know, the fans, the sort of super fans that ask them questions like, what was the combination of your safe in this episode? And Kirk's like, I don't, I don't know. Why would I know that? Well, my friend and I argue about it. You know? <laughs> no. You remember the story. So this is true. And again, you'll, you'll see this. You never go home when you go see a movie and say, what exactly happened? Right? You talk about the gist of it. You don't talk about actual things. We've all seen Shakespeare plays. Probably all had to study some Shakespeare in school. Very few of us remember the whole, the whole soliloquies people made. Unless you were forced to because your grade 12 English teacher was a jerk and made you memorize stuff. Maybe that was just me. Specific stuff, not so good. Right? It's not good at that. What would the use be of remembering? Think about this sort of functionally. What would the use be of remembering perfect details of things? Wouldn't be much at all, much function, wouldn't it? It makes a lot of sense to remember the gist of it, though. Right? Can we have repressed memories? Well, this is a bit controversial. First of all, it's a Freudian idea which should immediately make you sick to your stomach and throw up a little bit in your mouth. <laughs> you know, because he was a freak. I know that's an ad hominem argument, and I don't care. It's Freud's idea, really, that we repress bad stuff. It has some intuitive appeal, really, if you think about it. But... Uh, we talked the other day, Freud is not really such a scientific theory, right? Hard to test. This is the ultimate thing that's hard to test, by the way, isn't it? Because if I say to you that you repressed a memory, you can't say, no, I didn't, I don't remember that. Yeah, I know, you repressed it. <laughs> I can't validate that. It's tough to do. Now, you've got to remember a couple of things here. Typically, and then, 
this was really big in the 80s and early 90s, the idea of ritualistic satanic abuse. Okay? Ritualistic satanic abuse. This never happened. There has never once been a case ever with any evidence of there ever being any ritualistic satanic abuse. Has there been child abuse? Oh, yes. And I don't like the term abuse, by the way, because that means it's okay to use children in certain ways. That's only good. But that, you know what I mean. The horrible things happen to some kids, yeah, and it's heartbreaking, and it's uh, and it makes me want to hang people in a public square and against the death penalty. But that's not what I'm talking about. Those people remember those things, don't they? They'd like to forget them. I'm sure people that have had these things happen in their lives when they've been beaten up or psychologically abused as kids, uh, they don't want to remember those things. They'd rather they went away, but they don't go away. Then what about PTSD? What about? Well, um, there are memories that are suppressed um, that don't come out until you're ready to deal with them. Yeah, people have memories when they have PTSD. I mean, it's still affecting them, and they still have the memories well, of sure, They carry it so. around, but they just—it's not in the—it's not in their everyday life. It's the elephant in the room, but you're not talking about the elephant. Yeah, not talking about it is different than not remembering it, though, right? But so it's there, but it's not really there. Well, I mean, the thing is, if you've been in battle and you killed a lot of people and watch your friends get their heads blown off. That, first of all, that's very tough. I'm sure very tough to deal with. I don't know how soldiers do that kind of work. I really don't know. I don't know how every soldier doesn't get PTSD. Yeah. I really don't. The amazing thing is most don't. Boggles my mind. Um, but people do remember doing things. They more try to shove them aside. Is it in there bothering them? Yes. Um, when you ask them about it, they will say, yeah, yeah, I was over there. Okay. Right? Uh, they don't. They know it. They don't say it. That's the big difference, right? You get people to deal with it conceivably through therapy, drugs, etc. That's gonna help. But it's there. They know that they. The, the 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 residential school survivors, the ones who were abused, they know those things happened to them. They just don't want to talk about it. The people that get sexually assaulted, soldiers that have been in battle, they, they, they know that stuff's there. They'd really rather not talk about it. Now, there's a lot of reasons I'm talking about it. Maybe you don't want to really do that. Maybe you might find it embarrassing for some reason, right? And no matter how many times someone tells you it's not embarrassing. Or it's not your fault. Or it's not your fault. You may have been sort of psychologically damaged so much that you believe it's your fault anyway. You may have been explicitly told that. Um, you know, you have all these things that are sitting in there, but you know what happened. The, the, the kids that were abused at Mount Cashel by the Christian brothers in Newfoundland, those guys didn't come forward until they were in their 30s. And they all knew what happened. They didn't want to talk about it. And finally, some brave guys got up and said, this happened to me. These guys raped me every day. And other guys came forward, and those guys got sued out of existence, which is good. So people tend to, most people, I mean, yeah, the people try to, look, there's going to be forgetting of everything. But we remember traumatic events, too. You don't see a lot of people, uh, this is going to sound crass, and it's not meant to be to sound crass. You don't see a lot of people that are in their 70s that have a tattoo of a serial number on their arm, not knowing where they've got it from. Right? You don't see victims of the Holocaust going, I don't know what happened. It's just it's always been there. They know why they they know that the Germans put them in camps and such. Yeah, please. Uh, wouldn't that have more to do with uh, disassociative disorders than PTSD? Well, it could. Yeah. Because that's like they're just suppressing them. With disassociative disorders, they're more like, um, I don't know, I, I always thought that it was considered repressed memories. Well, dissociative identity disorder may not even exist. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's, it's kind of a controversial subject in and of itself. I just meant all of them in general. Yeah. Depersonalizing. Could be, yeah, all that kind of stuff. That could be, you know. Just and that could be a, cop a coping yeah. uh, mechanism yeah, so for when you're, you are being tortured, is to say, I'm now another person. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when 
Soldiers are trained in SEER school, search, evade, uh, escape, that kind of thing. Like special forces soldiers, they're, they're told to actually do that. They're, they're, they know they're going to get it. When those guys get captured, they don't get treated very well, typically. And they're told to do things like, um, imagine you're somebody else and just in your mind build a house. The thing is, you have to know how to build a house. <laughs> Like really know how, because if you don't know how to do that, in two hours you've built the house, and then you're back being yourself. Like they're actually taught these 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 coping mechanisms, right? Um, but I mean, how many of us have you know? I think many of us have grandfathers or grandmothers or perhaps even great grandparents that were that fought in World War II, and they mostly don't want to talk about it. My grandfather talked about it once, once, and that's it. And he was getting close to dying, and he talked about it on a videotape. And he talked about carrying guys that were prisoners of the Japanese out, Canadian soldiers that had been there since December 1941. And he, his ship came and picked them up, and he made them their first hot meal. And uh, he carried a guy into a prison camp with 70 pounds. And he was pretty blown away by that, because that must have been, you know, I mean, he carried that around with him his whole life. He knew it, we just never talked about it. He'd say, Grandfather, what would you do with the war? And he'd say, I, you know, we were on the ship. It was a lot of fun. I was the cook for the captain, so it was great. And he never said, oh, and then there was that time. <laughs> no. You know. You, you see the old pictures? Like, oh, look at that. you got a, a German U-boat crew on the deck of your ship. What are they doing? Oh, they're holding up their battle engine because we sunk them. He never said, and we killed a bunch of them in the process. But he knew it. Right? So this people do... Bad things happen. So I'm not trying to say, one of the things that people often said in the 90s when people were arguing about this is, you're denying there's ever abuse. No, I'm not. I deny there's ever been uh, satanic ritual abuse. It's never been the case. You would think with all this horrible abuse that was going on that there would have actually been some evidence that showed up, and it never has. Never has. So that's something that... Uh, where are we? Here we go. Um... Most people don't tell the stories because of embarrassment or threats or things like that. Implanting false memories, however, is exceedingly easy. And this is part of the problem. We have people, and this doesn't happen so much anymore, people are doing like hip, hip, hypnotherapy kind of work. And hypnosis actually does have a use. Uh, there, there are things it can do. Though it doesn't help you remember stuff. The data clearly show that. It does not help you remember anything. I would get very upset when I hear that it doesn't happen so much anymore, but you hear like a judge has allowed a hypnotherapist to come in and hypnotize a, a witness, and it's, that does nothing. The data show clearly it does absolutely nothing. You know, why not have a homeopath come in too? It, they, they, or an astrologer. It doesn't do anything. Um, there are things it does do. Hypnotism, okay? I'm not saying it doesn't do anything, but it doesn't help your memory. Um, but implanting false memories is exceedingly easy. So we have these people that were believed. Well, they do it in cartoons and stuff, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's good enough for me. Um, <laughs> but that, that, that's the kind of thing where it, it's in a popular culture yeah. sort of thing. But it's also the case that there were people that really thought that they, the therapists that thought they could do this. There's a book called The Courage to Heal, which is a book about being abused as a child and how the repressed memories affect you. And it lists the following things as being evidence that you were abused as a kid. Headaches. Uh, insomnia. Just general lethargy. If you ever feel any of these kind of things, you were abused as a child. Or you're just a human. That's the other more simple explanation. And the other thing it says, if you say you were abused, you were abused, which, that's not how, no, because if I say I am the king of the popes, it's from our, that's the old SCTV sketch, doesn't make it so, right? So, the thing is, these are people that are giving you memories, suggesting ideas, saying to the kids at the McMartin preschool trial, so where did they touch you? Show me on this doll. Not saying, did they? But where? Kids are, they're, they're three. They make shit up. 
It's what they do. It's their job to make things up. They're pretending. And sitting there for hours on end, and finally it's like even a three-year-old figures out, oh, okay, I see. The therapist lady here wants me to point to the penis on the doll so I can leave. Yeah, it's right there. I got another McDonald's. <laughs> so kids aren't stupid. They'll figure it out. So implanting these memories are really, really easy to do. Um, and there's the problem. Can we tell the difference between a false memory and a real memory? Uh, it's very difficult to tell the difference. There has been some um, success using PET scans. It looks like more of your whole, lighting up of the whole brain a lot more than specific areas when you're remembering stuff. But that's, uh, it's not enough that it would stand up in court. But if you're going to convict somebody of something, you actually need real evidence. And there were cases where people were convicted of crimes based on nothing other than testimony that was done under hypnosis. Uh, most of those have been overturned happily. And many of them were overturned with the help of uh, psychologists, uh, especially psychologists like uh, Elizabeth Loftus. Memories are just one form of evidence, and in fact, Paul Dupuy will tell you they're not very good evidence either. Right? That eyewitness testimony is horrible. And we tend to have it. We think of it in this, in this high level, like, oh, did you get any, you know, there any witnesses? That's actually the most important thing, is this things point to stuff. Yeah, I think one of the saddest things is in cases where people are actually, or like, say, domestic violence or situations like that, and yeah. there is no evidence because the women were afraid to go. Of course. It's like all they have is the memory. It's sad because you need that so that you don't falsely convict somebody because yes. it's sad and we can actually get people. Oh, I know. I mean, this, and the problem that's happened with, 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 with this controversy with, with these false memories is that. It's now that people question people when they're really in these horrible situations. They've done exactly the opposite to what they were trying to do. Right? Making up data almost always does that. It really does. It always comes back to bite you in the ass exactly the wrong place. Or do the wrong way, you know. So memories are just one form of evidence, and happily things don't end up anymore like that. Um, our memories are at best reconstructive. One of the things that Elizabeth Loftus did is that thing called the Mall Experiment, and I love this. What she does is she gets students, undergrads, to come into her lab, and she says, I've called your folks, and you have to supply your phone number, okay? I've called your parents, and I've asked them to tell me a story about when you were a kid. Uh, I'm going to give you a cue, and I want you to recall this. This sounds all legit. Do you remember the time you were lost in the mall when you were five years old? And you've got to confirm with the parents that the kid was never lost in the mall when he was five. So they really, she has really talked to the parents. And you've got people, by the way, who were never lost in the mall when they were five. And then everybody says the same thing. I really, no, I don't. I don't remember that. And then she tells everybody, by the way, the same story. Well, what happened was your mom went to look for this in this store. And you guys got separated, and you were looking at some toys. And you ended up having to go to the mall security, and you talked to the mall cop, and they did a PA announcement, and they found you. Everything turned out okay. But you were crying, you were really upset, and afterwards, you know, she puts all these details in, and afterwards you went and did this and that. Really, I don't remember that at all. No, I was talking to your mother and half. Now, you got to get mom and dad to play along, so that when they call home that night, did Dr. Loftus call you? Yeah, I told him the story about when you were lost in the mall. Oh, okay. They come back the next day, and then a week later into the lab. You remember anything about the time you were lost in the mall? Oh, I know, it was so horrible. There was this really bad thing that happened, so I got separated from mom, right? And I was looking at toys, and then they tell the whole story. Like, it's real. Now, she then tells them a couple things. First of all, that never happened to you. And I know it does feel like it. Your parents and I are in on this, and that's just to show you that it's easy to give you false memories. Now, there is one potential problem here. Kids do get lost the most, and they don't remember. But, we, I mean, I know I can think of two times when I was lost with my brother in the mall. You know, I was always like, okay, Dan, what we have to do now is we have to find mall security. 
It was always in the States, too, for some reason. Yeah. But I remember that happening a couple times. But, you know, but the details people come back with are the same ones that Elizabeth Loftus gave them. It's beautiful. And she wasn't their therapist. She's not some trusted person who's hypnotized them. She's some psychologist. I really get a good one, by the way. So it's easy to implant false memories. Very easy. All right, now, uh, any questions on that? Okay, what I want you to do is raise your hand if you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some words, if you had those words, if you remember those words from before, okay? Try not to be influenced by anybody else, please. Just raise your hand if you saw the word. Okay, pin. Okay? Book. Okay? Chair. Ceiling. Sharp, uh-huh. pointy, yep. Haystack, yeah, yeah, you're right. Needle, no. No, needle was not on the list. Needle was not on the list. Sharp, pointy, inoculation, photograph, haystack, pin. Yeah, those all work. Those all work. In fact, the words I used, pin, sharp, pointy, haystack, knitting, inoculation, phonograph, those are the words in the English language that are most highly associated with the word needle. I just didn't use needle. Needle should be on that list. It just isn't. This was demonstrated. This is a paradigm invented by Roddy Roediger. I saw him get this demonstration. If you said yes to needle, don't feel bad. Roddy was at this conference. Gary decided to bring the agricultural science, and it was in... Uh, would have been, was the right turn, 30, so it would have been 1995 in Halifax. And he was the keynote speaker. And he said, I'm going to now, he actually said this to us, a room with 200 people in it, about half of whom have PhDs, the other half at least had master's degrees. And he says, I'm going to implant a false memory in you now. And we're all like, oh, right. So he re- leads, us, leads us the list, and then he starts his lecture, and then halfway through he says, okay, put your hand up. And we go, needle, and all those, and he goes, no. And you heard people go, oh, come on, show us the slide. Goes back and goes back to the slide. It's like, see, everybody's like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. And afterwards, everybody's saying the same thing after at the reception. Afterwards, we totally use that in class. You can do it also with birds, so it's feather, nest, egg, fly. These are wonderful techniques. I'm not your therapist. You don't trust me implicitly. I hope, because uh, that's a little weird. I'm just some guy up here talking about stuff, and I just implanted a false memory in you. It felt real, and in fact, you know what's really interesting? When you ask people which one they're most confident of, it's needle, if they remember needle. Oh, all right, questions about that? It's kind of cool. And you can use it to win bar bets. You record and you say the words, because they have to have evidence. Right? Let's talk flashbulb memories. These seem to be hyper-accurate and super detailed. Um, and they're almost always about shared cultural experiences, but they're not as accurate as they seem. And here's some examples. There's Paul Henderson scoring the goal in 1972. Henderson took a wild stab at it and fell. There's another shot. He scores! And that's where I hugged the little girl beside me who I had never had, well, wouldn't meet for another two years. I told you that story. But I remember where I was that day. I was in the Jimbo Press in public school. And I know that's true. That's where I went to school. What else could it be? My, my, my memory is filled in, and I know I hugged a little girl, but my memory is filled in. Oh, the first little girl you were really friends with was Maria. It's probably great. And I know it can't be her. Um, when Canada won the gold medal in 2002, the first uh, time in, in 50 years we won a gold medal in hockey, a lot of so maybe that's a little more recent for you guys than the hockey fans, maybe you remember that one. Um, maybe your grandparents, or parents perhaps, remember where they were when Kennedy was shot. Many people will report that Kennedy was shot that they remember seeing the film on the news of the very famous film where Kennedy's head gets blown off and then Jackie Kennedy reaches to the back and literally grabs a piece of his skull off the back of the car. That film didn't show up anywhere until 1967. It was never shown on the news as a good film. Never shown on the news. Until late 60s. It was found later on. People say, oh, I remember that. Yeah, because it probably 
should be there. We've all seen that film, that, that piece of film that Zapruder took a thousand times. You may remember where you were when you found out Princess Diana died. That's another one. Right? You probably remember where you were when those bastards flew those planes into the World Trade Center. The thing about some of these things, Kennedy, the, the, the thing about the Kennedy assassination is that we have film of what news coverage was like. So we know what was on the news. So we know that there's no way that your parents saw that film because it wasn't there. Um, we do know where your parents. We do know there are other details, like when Walter Cronkite takes off his glasses, the news announcer for CBS, and he's got a tear in his eye when he finds out that Kennedy just perhaps dead. People remember that, and that's real because that was on TV. And did people? Yeah, people. In fact, immediately, and your parents, grandparents, whatever may tell you this, that. School was let out, and that was in Canada too, by the way. People stopped working. My mom was working at the Montreal Stock Exchange, and they shut down the trading network. And everybody just went to TVs and radios and listened. My mom talks about the Cuban Missile Crisis like, like it was yesterday as well. Um, the thing about 9-11 is that we know what was on TV. You can actually go back at archive.org to the Wayback Machine and watch CNN from that day. People report, we all know where we were, right? Right? I just came out of class. I was teaching in Newfoundland, so it's an hour and a half later. I came out of class, and my phone was blinking because my wife just called, asked me about this. I got an email from my dad that said, have you heard about this plane shit? <laughs> my dad was a plane-spoken fellow. Um, plane-spoken. Plane-spoken. I remember going with my friend Peter to try and figure out who did it, and I remember we figured it was Al Qaeda actually, because we knew we were crossing off it couldn't be North Korea. So I was saying, "Isn't that stupid?" You know, it's kind of crazy. That Bin Laden guy. <laughs> um, people report having seen the second plane live on TV crash into the ta- the second tower. No one saw that live on TV. That film that you saw it on TV, you didn't see it live. That film surfaced quickly on the second day, on the first day, and you saw it. You did not see it live. You did not see it live. Right. So these things aren't as accurate as they seem to be, even though they really feel like they are. Part of the reason now we know is because we have TV coverage. We can go back and look at. It. We know what was on television. Yeah. George Bush's encounter of that or something where he was like saying that he saw it happen on TV and that's when he first learned about it, but we all know he was reading to a bunch of kids. But think about what a blur it would have been for him then. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was whispered to you can actually watch the, the film. He's whispered to it his his, his by one of his aides, and his expression completely changes. He finishes the story and says, I've got to go. And he's put into a plane that, you know, most of you guys are too young to remember this, but, you know, we didn't know what was happening next. And there were all kinds of rumors that he was put into the, 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 into the kneecap plane, the one that flies around and can be refueled forever and can always stay in the air and in case of a nuclear attack. So that's kind of a big thing that happened to his presidency, right? So, I mean, and I'm no fan of W, but I'll say this, that... It's not surprising he doesn't remember. Because none of us do. Really remember what happened. I just remember grade eight, stayed at school for lunch that day, and kids came back from going home and watching the news, going, oh my god. Yeah. I know that my daughter was taking a class in like rock climbing at the YMCA in Cornerbrook, and her instructor said to the kids, and you gotta remember, so it's 2001, so she would have been eight. Well, I hope we get this done because the world's ending. Way to go. Nice to play. Nice to play. I also remember uh, Maddie at the time actually literally quoting Command and Conquer. So that was good. She quoted a video game. She said, hey, Dad, I am cannon charging. Um, and then she said, their base is under attack. If you play Command and Conquer, you get all those references. If you don't, do that. Um, Thing is, it's just like the Space Shuttle Challenger, Lunar Exploded. That was in 84, 85, 
five, he was six. I was in second year, and I remember because it exploded 73 seconds after. I remember walking along with a girl that I really liked, an old friend of mine, and we're walking along to a personality class. And she said, and there were TVs always uh, in the student lounge at Western, and we walked along, and she said, oh, what's that? I said, oh, it's at the state show watch. They love it for two weeks. Who cares? And then, of course, I got home, and my dad's shoving the driveway. He said, you got the thing blew up? I said, what? The space shuttle exploded. I said, really? Now, it happened at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The number of people that report having watched that live is so high that so many people didn't watch it live. Because at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, that was a routine thing back when space shuttles used to go up. Right? So they aren't as accurate as they seem. So on 9-11, the question, we all remember where we were. Yeah, we all do. Right? I walked out of a class, and everybody was talking at the university. In Gordon. My friend Les, at Sorofograph College, where he went to Newfoundland, and there's a picture of Les, decided he was, that afternoon, teaching a class in cognition and memory. And he thought to himself, here we go. Here's a flashbulb memory. You can't make these in the lab. So he gave his students the second year class on memory gave them um, a questionnaire and it asked questions about how do you feel. It asked questions about what clothes are you wearing, what did you have for breakfast, all these kind of details, and where did you hear about this first. And then three years later, he had them, he contacted everybody and had them recall. And 37% uh, that people could recall 37% of the items they were asked. But mostly what they the best were calling was their emotional feeling. They were not good at the real details. Which we all think we have, right? Well, I remember the men landing on the moon. I was four, but I do remember it. I was living in Kingston, right? And both sets of grandparents were at our place because it was really hot in Montreal, but we had an air-conditioned apartment in Kingston. So everybody was at our place. And we watched it. And I remember looking up to, the, to the, 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 the pool, the courtyard of the apartment building, and there was nobody in the pool, even though it was a hot day. Except my mom's told me that. I have a very vivid memory of this, except I've been told the story of when we watched Apollo 11 land on the moon and Neil Armstrong steps off. Yeah, I'm probably just making most of that up from stories I've been told, family lore, you know? Some conclusions. Um, autobiographical memory is pretty much an episodic phenomenon. These memories tend to be best guesses. We can see that even for a list of words. When the, when the content is missing the word needle on the list, it doesn't have that item. They tend to be best guesses. These guesses are usually pretty good guesses. Needle should have been on that list. It just wasn't. But it really should have been there. We didn't evolve in an environment where, you know, one homo or gaster looked at another and said, I'm going to give you a list of words. It didn't work that way. Your memory is reconstructive. It's reconstructive. It is not playing back video on your phone. Even if, no matter how much it feels like that, it's almost always reconstructive. Trust me, 
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.